Hey y'all, it's Jesse. I'm asking that in honor of this episode of Kentucky History and Haunts, that my listeners make a donation to the Center for Women and Families in Louisville, and I will link to that charity's donation page in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I couldn't help but notice that my episodes with the most listens are the true crime episodes, and I am not at all surprised. I love true crime. You love true crime. So, of course, I'm going to keep bringing you the history and the haunts, but for today, I've got a really good true crime episode. It spans several decades, it spans several states, but it mostly takes place in the great state of Kentucky, and it's just, boy, it's a lot. So, this is Kentucky History and Haunts. I am Jesse Bartholomew. And today our story starts with a man named Wilbur Riddle. And it was May 17, 1968, in Georgetown, Kentucky, off of Route 25, where Riddle was out working as a water well driller. But that particular morning, he had either gotten there early or maybe he had a note from his boss saying, don't start without me. So he was just roaming around. He was actually collecting glass insulators. Um, that telephone workers had discarded. He was going to paint and sell them. So he's actually, like, sc- scanning the ground, right? He's he's looking for these things, and he comes across something large wrapped in a green canvas tarp tied with rope. And then he noticed this horrible smell. So he tapped the object with his foot, and it rolls down this slope, exposing the body of a naked decomposing Caucasian female sort of curled up in the fetal position with her right fist clenched. So Riddle immediately hightailed it to either a gas station or directly to the sheriff's office, depending on the report you read, and everybody heads back to the scene, and they quickly learn that they do not have a lot to work with here. So it's Scott County Sheriff Bobby Vance, Deputy Jimmy Williams, and Deputy Coroner Kenneth Grant. It appeared that she had been there a pretty good amount of time, her eyes had rotted, and her body was badly deteriorated. And there were no possessions anywhere around. Like I said, she was totally naked. There was nothing there that could help ID her. So they were like, we got to maybe try to get some fingerprints. And to do that, they would have to rehydrate her fingers with chemicals. Now, I did want to explain this a bit because I think it's fascinating. When a body decomposes, the decay can cause the fingers to shrivel and it um, makes the rigidity different. It makes it more difficult to use the prints for identification. So there's a term called thanatopractical processing in which, quote, quote, fluid is extracted from other parts of the body's remains and used to restore tenseness and volume to the fingers in order to plump them for printing. And according to an article in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, quote, the optimal procedure is rehydrating the fingertips with sodium carbonate solution for 24 hours, followed by dusting the finger and transferring the print to adhesive tape. So the investigators did some version of this to rehydrate her fingers and try to get some prints. And they did successfully get one, 
but at the time there was not they didn't have anything to compare them to so it was a dead end um, there was no one that they had a record of that matched them so then they look at her teeth which happened to have a a small but like significant gap between the front two, which was at least some sort of unique and defining characteristic so they could help build a profile for her. Now, coroner Frank Cleveland was called in to do the final autopsy, which revealed that she was a young woman between 16 and 19 years old, and that she was petite, standing just over five feet tall, weighing just over 100 pounds, so she was pretty little. Now, There was no sign of toxic or poison material in her body, and there was an assumption that she had been knocked unconscious, maybe from a blow to the head, due to some very slight discoloration in the skull, and then she'd perhaps suffocated while unconscious, wrapped up in that tarp. And they determined also that she'd been dead anywhere from two weeks to two months, which is quite a range, but it was the 1960s, so we're going to let them slide on that one. Early on in the investigation, the sheriff realized he was out of his element and he needed to call in the Kentucky State Police. And after they start to like collaborate, they're like, well, first we have to start by looking at the materials that she was wrapped up in. So first they look for the rope, but they realized that it was basically sold at every hardware store everywhere and there was just no way to narrow it down. So then they looked at the canvas material and that turned out to be from a commonly used tent, which of course is how she came to be known as Tent Girl. So both the canvas tent and the rope bring no leads. Next, they start digging through missing persons reports, trying to find a possible match, which mind you was a way more strenuous process in the 1960s with no help from the internet. I mean, we're in the golden age of the Rolodex at this point, so they're literally like flipping through a page at a time trying to make a match here. And nothing comes from this either. And at some point in 1971, while they're still just trying to identify her, she's buried in an unmarked grave in the Georgetown Cemetery. And after that, a Covington police officer, Harold Musser, or Mooser, is asked to draw a sketch based on the autopsy of what this woman might look like so they can distribute it nationally and ask other states to start going through their missing person files as well. And they get a ton of calls from this sketch that he makes, but nothing with potential really comes from it until one day they're contacted by detectives in Maryland. A mother had reported her 15-year-old daughter, Doris Dittmar, missing in Maryland. Doris was last seen getting into a car with her 17-year-old boyfriend months ago. The description of this teenage girl did match the body that they had in Georgetown. And I cannot imagine having to do this in a million years, and I don't even have kids, but they asked her to come all the way to Kentucky to meet with them and look at the autopsy photos. So it's really hard to tell, and this woman has to study these photos of this decomposed body, trying to figure out if it's her daughter, and she just can't tell for certain. But at this point, I think people involved in the investigation just really wanted it to be closed, 
So they're basically like, yes, okay, this is your daughter. We don't have any other leads. Go home and start planning her funeral. So the mother goes back to Maryland, starts making the funeral arrangements, and 10 days later, the Kentucky police get an anonymous call saying that Tent Girl is not the missing girl in Maryland, and that that teenager that went missing with her boyfriend, they're still alive. So they investigate further, and they actually locate Doris outside of Philadelphia, and it turns out that she and her boyfriend had actually run away together to start a new life. Now, I don't know the details about this family, but I just kept thinking about the mom in this story. And unless she was some abusive, horrible woman, I feel so bad for her going through what must have been just an absolute emotional roller coaster. So for the Kentucky State Police, that's now a dead lead. So then they get a call from police in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And a few weeks before Tent Girl was found, Another body was found in Pennsylvania in a very similar position. She was tied up in a tent-like material with rope, naked, with no way to ID her and no way to determine cause of death because of her advanced state of decom. Lots of similarities here, but so far away. And I do have a quote here. Autopsy findings were the same in both cases. No identifiable cause of death, both bodies showed a slight discoloration of the skin covering the skull in the same spot on the right side. Both corpses were wrapped in canvas bags, tied with rope from top to bottom, with the feet tucked under the torso. Both of the bodies had been dumped away from the main roads and were not found for weeks. This victim in Pennsylvania was eventually identified as Candace Clothier, and she was very physically similar to the victim in Kentucky. Candace was last seen leaving her home to catch a bus, which she never boarded. And the next time anyone saw her was when she was found in the woods five weeks later. And since this happened, the investigation kind of recaptured national attention because people were like, oh, this could be connected. But still, nothing really pans out here, and it's kind of set aside and becomes another dead lead at the time. And around this time, a local funeral home donates a headstone with a sketch of the girl and the words Tent Girl on it to replace the previously unmarked grave, which, honestly, I'm like, is Tent Girl really better than an unmarked grave? But I don't know. It was a kind gesture. So then some years go by. And Wilbur Riddle, who's the man who found the body, he's just kind of haunted by the fact that it's going unsolved, and he spends a lot of time talking about it. So much so that he piques the interest of his daughter's high school boyfriend and eventual husband, Todd Matthews. And Todd ends up being a huge help with this case. I even saw one report where Todd had estimated that the victim might be older than they previously thought, and he wrote the investigators a letter urging them to do a pelvic exam to see if the victim had given birth, but they didn't take this seriously. Now, Todd definitely starts to share Riddle's interest in getting this case solved, and 
it gets easier for him with the invention of the internet and easier access to the internet and these like forums and all that in the 1990s. And then one day, bingo, Todd comes across a post from a woman named Rosemary Westbrook who's online searching for her sister who went missing in Kentucky in 1968. So they schedule a phone call and Todd is now talking to Rosemary and Rosemary tells Todd what happened to her missing sister, Barbara Ann Hackman, AKA Bobby. Bobby was born in Illinois on September 12, 1943. And then later in life, she moved to Kentucky. She met a man named George Earl Taylor, who was a carnival worker with a two-year-old daughter who was claiming that his wife had left them for another man. Now, Bobby initially babysat for the, for the guy's young daughter, and it all started innocent enough, but after just a few short months, what do you know, they got married. So Bobby starts working alongside him at the carnival. They travel together, they have kids, they move to Florida, which is never a good sign. Sorry, Florida. Now, George was a truck driver in the winter, so Bobby's mom and sister ended up moving down to Florida too so that Bobby wasn't stuck alone all winter trying to care for these kids. And then one day, Bobby and George show up to Bobby's sister's place of work and randomly try to sell her a TV, which she already has a TV, so she's like, this is strange. And then they kind of go on and tell her that they have to get out of town for a while. Now, apparently George was a draft dodger and the FBI was not happy with him. And I guess they were kind of snooping around town looking for him. Bobby says they're taking the kids and maybe heading to Texas or North Carolina and that she'll give her sister a call from wherever they land when it's safe to do so. Time goes by after Bobby and George leave Florida, and Bobby's sister Rosemary does not hear from her, which is unsettling. But it gets worse when people in town start saying that they've seen George back in town. So he's returned to Florida, and he's living in a different area, in a more rural area, and Bobby is not with him. And someone tells her that George is going around telling people that Bobby left him for another man, which is, by the way, what he told Bobby happened with his first wife when they met at the carnival. And Rosemary is like, you know, this, I don't think my sister would do that, whatever. So it's suspicious. Now, Bobby's sister goes straight to this town where George is said to be living now, and she talks to the local police department who, wouldn't you know it, had just recently pulled George over for a traffic violation. So he was fresh on their mind and they've got his address and they're like, go right over. She goes to confront him. He tells her the same story he's been telling everybody else and he won't tell her where the kids are. This is when Bobby's sister files a missing persons report in Florida. And when they go back to visit George with Bobby's mother, he's already gone. And then 30 years go by. 30 years, three decades. 
no George, no Bobby, no kids. And then one day, out of the blue, Bobby's sister Rosemary gets a call from Bobby's now grown children. Now, at this time when they reconnect, I guess the kids knew that their dad, George, had died of cancer. But when they talk to Bobby's sister, they start to put together what must have happened to their mom. So they're like, no, Aunt Rosemary, we did not go to Texas or North Carolina like mom had planned. They actually all moved back to Kentucky and they were living in Lexington over a restaurant in a one bedroom apartment. Now, when Bobby's oldest daughter was about seven years old, she said she could remember waking up one night to her mom and dad in a struggle, but she didn't want to get in trouble for being awake that late at night, so she just turned away and pretended to be asleep, and then when she woke up the next morning, her mother was gone. And then, very similar to the Marlene Oaks story, George told the kids after that that their mother had left them to go start a new life, which what is with these men? If that is not true and you're able to look in your kids' eyes and lie to them about that, whew, that's, that's wicked. So now that Bobby's family has this new information, they go to the Kentucky State Police with it, but are basically told, no, we don't have a match to her description. And this was actually the point when Bobby's sister, Rosemary, connected with Todd, Wilbur Riddle's son-in-law. Now, Todd said that the reason the police may not have connected her with Tent Girl was because they believed her to be 16 to 18, and Bobby was 24 when she went missing. It could have been that assumed age difference that made them not connect the dots there. Also, according to one source I found, quote, Sadly, Westbrook had attempted to file a missing persons report with the Lexington Police Department on October 31st, 1995, as part of her ongoing search for any trace of her sister. She talked to an officer, Lily, in the missing persons homicide department and answered the questions, but nothing ever came of it. On her first visit to Lexington later, she told a TV reporter about the report And when he checked on it, he could find no evidence that the report had ever been filed. It appears that Officer Lilly never filled out the report and probably felt that he or she was only humoring a strange phone caller on a Halloween night, which is unfortunate. Had the report been filed, likely Barbara Taylor would have been identified in 1995, four years earlier than she finally was. Now, this particular source called her Barbara Taylor it's the only one I saw that did because the, the family and everyone else dropped that married name and called her Hackman um, since the husband becomes the main suspect in the case. So they continue to basically pester the police and finally they agree to have a forensic anthropologist come in and compare photos of Bobby with the autopsy photos from the 60s. Now Right off the bat, they do notice similarities in what's left of the bone structure and the teeth of Tent Girl and photos of Bobby. The next step was exhuming the body so they could do a DNA test. So they swabbed Rosemary's cheek and compared it with pulp from the body's teeth. 
and it came back a match. Barbara Ann Hackman is Tent Girl. So she was found in May of 1968 and officially identified in April of 1998. According to AnomalyInfo.com, Bobby had three children at the time of her disappearance, the youngest being eight months old. One of the daughters that we know of was living in Ohio and was married with kids of her own by the time she learned what had happened to her mom. They put up a new gravestone for her, which included the inscription, loving mother, grandmother, and sister. On her new gravestone, they did not include her married name, Taylor. In more recent years, they have learned the circumstances of the Pennsylvania case, Candace Clothier, and it sounds like even though they were hauntingly similar circumstances, the two were not related. But I'm still so curious about George Earl Taylor and specifically if he really had a first wife. Um, if he did, if he was telling the truth, truth about that, who was she and where was she? Why didn't she come forward? Why didn't anyone come forward during all of this? You know, somebody had to know him and have some answers. He... The only picture I could find of him was when he was really young. So he's he's just a very mysterious character in this whole thing. Now, there was some good that came of this. Um, Todd Matthews, who helped to get this case solved, went on to co-found the Doe Network, which is a nonprofit organization of volunteers who work with law enforcement to connect missing person cases with John and Jane Doe cases. And I wanted to give one final note here. I came across this like after I'd finished my research basically, but according to Barbara Hackman or Bobby's findagrave.com bio, she had more siblings when she was younger, but her father and all her male siblings were swept away in a flood. Now I couldn't find any more information on that, but holy cow, like this family is no stranger to tragedy. It's so sad. So that is the story of Barbara, a.k.a. Bobby Hackman, a.k.a. Tent Girl. Thanks for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. I know this one's frustrating. It leaves more questions than the answers, I think. I used a lot of information from the Crime Junkie episode on this one. Um, it was from February of 2018 called Murdered Tent Girl. I also used an article from the Huffington Post in 2017, A Body in Kentucky, The 30-Year-Long Mystery of Tent Girl, and an article from theartofkilling.com from March of 2020 called Tent Girl. If you know anything about this case um, or I you know, missed something or made a mistake, uh, send me an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Um, if you just want to talk about some other topic or whatever, follow me on Instagram. Send me a message at kyhistoryhaunts and find the Facebook page Kentucky History and Haunts. Thanks so much and I look forward to bringing you another episode here soon.